We're always very glad whenever we can to have a session on Australia. And today, uh, the director of the Australian Studies Center here at UT, Rhonda Evans, is going to introduce our speaker. Thanks, Roger. Well, I want to take this opportunity to thank the British Studies Program for once again partnering with the Clark Center for Australian and New Zealand Studies to bring in a speaker with an Australian focus. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Michael Berkner. I know Michael from our participation in the Australian New Zealand Studies Association of North America. I've seen him present papers at conferences on many occasions, and so I can tell you from firsthand experience that you're in for a treat this afternoon. With someone as distinguished a career as Michael's, it will be hard for me to do full service to all of his accomplishments. And so in these few minutes, I will just hit some of the highlights so as not to steal too much time from this afternoon's main event. Michael is a professor of history at Gettysburg College. He took that position in 1989, and in a sense, he was returning uh, to home in a way because he had received his undergraduate degree from Gettysburg College before going on to do a PhD in history at the University of Virginia. At Gettysburg College, he held the Benjamin Franklin Chair of Liberal Arts from 2001 to 2006, and he is a past president of the uh, Pennsylvania Historical Association. In terms of Michael's research interests, they're quite broad. He studies the 19th, 19th and 20th century America, or if you hear Michael narrow things down, he's interested in the 1850s and the 1950s. <laughs> With respect to his work from the 1850s, uh, his most recent work, I think, it's a 2019 publication date, is a co-edited three-volume series entitled The Worlds of James Buchanan and Thaddeus Stevens. Looking at Michael's research into the 1950s, he focuses largely on the presidency of Dwight D. Eisenhower. He's published um, several books, including a, a biography of uh, the president for middle school children. In addition, he's published a book in 2015 called Encounters with the Eisenhowers, which is firsthand meetings uh, with the Eisenhowers from various people. In addition, he's partnered with the Eisenhower National Historical Site and the Eisenhower Memorial Commission in various capacities to promote greater understanding of the Eisenhower presidency. In closing, I think it's important to note, given the topic of his talk today, that Michael also has experience working in journalism. In the 1980s, he took a brief hiatus from academia to work as the uh, ed chief editor editorial writer for the New Hampshire Concord Monitor newspaper. I also want to say that if you really enjoy today's talk, I know that Michael has at least nine videos on C-SPAN, so if you can't get enough, you can tune in for more Michael Berkner <laughs> on C-SPAN. And with that, I will turn it over to our distinguished speaker. Thank you. Well, thank you for that generous introduction. Um, you all remember LBJ's response to uh, effusive introductions, like uh, right, uh, where he said, uh, my mother would have approved it and my father would have believed it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. And uh, I want to thank uh, the British Studies Program. I want to study the, the Clark Center uh, for inviting me here. It's a real treat. I have been 
fortunate enough to do research both in the Ransom Center and the LBG Library, and I envy you all who have ready access to it as opposed to coming from the other side of the United States to do it. What magnificent research places, what great staff you have to help people get to the material they need and interpret the material. Um, you're all lucky ducks is what I would say. Um, but uh, I want to say one more thing to, the, to students bef before I get into the, the, uh, the talk proper. I said something of this nature uh, at lunch today and I thought it's really more appropriate for the uh, undergraduate and graduate students. And uh, as you have ambitions for your own scholarship, uh, it is really important that you uh, make friends with librarians and that you appreciate librarians. They are your ticket uh, to getting to the material that will make your careers. Uh, they're smart people and they have the kind of ability to get to things that the average uh, person does not have. And I'll just say specifically in terms of this project, the reason I'm here doing the, talking about Martin Nagronsky and about uh, American journalists in Australia in 1942 is that a friend of mine who uh, was a manuscripts librarian at the Library of Congress and knowing I had been to the University of Melbourne on sabbatical several times uh, saw me and said, you know, we just got this collection uh, from the family of Martin Nagronsky and I noticed in paging through uh, our guide that there's some uh, Australian material there. You might want to take a peek. And that tip has led to many, many hours of labor in the uh, Gronsky papers at the LC, and then expanding myself outward uh, to other journalist papers. As some of you know who are in journalism history, uh, the State Historical Society in Madison, Wisconsin has a fabulous collection of different journalist papers, and I've spent a good deal of time there as well. So my tip for the day, one that I, I think is worth listening to, is be good with librarians. Um, <laughs> So uh, this is the talk, but I want to I want to uh, get this. This is one of the uh, protagonists of my talk. That's Cecil Brown, uh, who was in his day a very famous journalist. Today, I don't think one in a thousand people would tell you they know who Cecil Brown is. But Cecil Brown had um, a, a great clout in the journalistic world. First as a roving reporter, uh, and then in Washington D.C., and then as a book writer. And the reason he's up here is that he's a character in what I'm going to have to talk. What I'm going to be talking about, but also his comments are kind of important to our theme. We fight for every word in our scripts because in our best judgment we feel every fact represents a fact which the American people have a right to know. I mean, that's the journalist creed, isn't it? Uh, and, and Brown was a good exponent of it. Um, so let me, let me talk about an uh, off-the-record press conference with Douglas MacArthur that was reported on uh, in March of 1942 by one of Brown's friendly competitors, Martin Nagronsky. Um, and it's an interesting piece that I thought would be a good kickoff to this talk. Uh, he was broadcasting back to the uh, NBC listener in the United States, and he was sending greetings from journalists who had been just coming in, streaming in to Australia from all points, San Francisco, Batavia, Singapore, and uh, the Philippines all coming to Australia because this is where the action was going to be in 1942. Uh, he added this comment as he introduced the program. The job we're trying to do here, the job of reporting the activities of the biggest expeditionary force of the Second World War, is for all of us the most absorbing and in many ways the toughest, one of the toughest assignments we've ever had. Uh, he then went on to talk about sitting on a story 
in March of 1942, knowing that he had a story but could not report it. And that story was a story that everybody was waiting to hear about. It was Douglas MacArthur. Had he made it out of the Philippines? Had he made it to Australia safely? Had he taken control of the situation? Was he going to give new hope to the Australians who feared that they would be, in fact, the next target of Japanese expansionists? So he, he says here that this is the only story we cared about, he tells the American listener. He said, um, but the headaches of coverage in Australia dealing with censorship are mountain size, but less consequential than the headaches the American armed forces are going to face over the next months. He turned the program over to his four, to four American colleagues to, quote, tell you what they think about being in Australia in this parlous time. He turned specifically first to a man named Robert Sherrod, who was a Time Life reporter at that time and who, again, has fallen into the mists in terms of recognition, but who was a big deal in his day. We do not have a transcript of the rest of the program after, after Agronsky has his, his words. We don't know what Sherrod told the American listener. Uh, and we don't know what the other uh, three reporters who spoke that day did either. But it, it was an issue of them opening a window into the subject of reporting and news management in the Pacific Theater. And that's really the topic that I'm addressing here. Now, as everybody here, at least every American here knows, World War II started on December 7th, 1941, right? Uh, we have that kind of a, of, of a cocoon in terms of our historical memory. Uh, so what happens here, of course, is there's a tremendous demand after December 7th of 41 for news from the theater of war, whether it's in Europe, whether, whether it's in Scandinavia, whether it's in the Pacific. Um, but the people who came to tell the story were telling the story under some fairly specific and, in many cases, uh, restrictive conditions. And that has to do with what they were allowed to tell. Uh, the federal government was determined from the outset of the war, uh, as one scholar has put it, that nothing but its version of events would be publicly available. Virtually any information that these reporters in Australia were going to share with their listeners back home or their audience, if they were print reporters, was going to be in some way or another from official sources and be an official version. Uh, and the authorities had the complete power to edit and control as they saw fit. I didn't think, I, I didn't bring it for a... Um, a slide for this, but there's a, there's a great example in Agronsky's papers, it's August 19th, 1942, in which he writes this very interesting account of what's going on in Australia on the labor front, and the censor just writes, refused, right on top of it. He's not going to tell it at all. Um, this is the fellow I just mentioned. That's Martin Agronsky in 1942. He was 27 years old when he, when he uh, arrived in Australia. He had been already uh, a full-time reporter in various guises for the previous six years. Uh, he, was a, a, he was a graduate of Rutgers uh, in New Jersey, had been born in Atlantic City, uh, got his uh, first grounding in journalism, working for his uncle, who was the editor of what became the Jerusalem Post. Uh, he did that for a year and then thought he needed some bigger view of the world, and he became a freelancer, wound up giving, uh, doing reports for various major American publications from the New York Times to the Atlantic Monthly, was offered a job on the same day by the New York Times as a foreign correspondent in 1941 that he was offered a job by NBC Radio. And Gronsky liked the idea of 
of getting himself directly in view of the, the listener, and so he took the NBC job. Um, the questions that he would deal with and the other journalists uh, in Australia would deal with, of course, were how far could they go in challenging what was the official story? How much leeway could they have in telling what they found that they did not get from official sources? But they were always re reminded, we're all on the same team, and you better remember that. And I would go one step further. They truly believed that they were on the same team. They were patriots. They were not interested in undermining the war effort. And what you have here is a kind of tension between telling a true story that might be uncomfortable for the audience you're writing for, uh, or telling it the way that the officialdom, for example, MacArthur and his general headquarters, want that story to be spun. And that, and that, I think, is what makes for the interesting role that they play and also f makes it interesting for me as a historian to delve into it. So again, I want to emphasize, don't see what I'm saying as uh, these reporters constantly battling uh, against these evil censors or these, these evil officials. Uh, it's a matter of finding a middle way that works for everybody. Um, now, let me set the stage here uh, again for why this fella and why Brown uh, come to Australia. Uh, you have Pearl Harbor in December and then just a cascade of bad news for the Allies, uh, particularly in the Pacific Theater uh, in December and January and February of 1942. It's almost rat-a-tat-tat -tat with the Japanese getting new territories uh, and moving beyond what any of the reporters themselves thought could happen. The exception, in a way, is Claude Brown, uh, uh, who I have uh, Claude uh, Cecil Brown, who I've just uh, introduced you to, because he is writing consistently in December and January of 1941 and early 42 that the British are not prepared properly to defend Singapore, that the British are just assuming that Singapore is safe because it is their Gibraltar of the East. And he says, you're not ready for this. And he is banging his head against the censors uh, in Singapore consistently. Uh, he bangs his head to the point where they get rid of him. They, they be, withdraw his accreditation. And then he goes over to the Dutch East Indies to report from Batavia. And he was there for two hours, two hours, not in time to annoy them particularly. But the Dutch say, you can't broadcast from here either because the British didn't want you and we're not going to get uh, crosswise with the British. So he has to leave Batavia. And that's what gets him ultimately to Australia in February of 1942. During this same period, Dozens of American journalists, as I hinted a minute ago, are coming from different parts of the world, including all over the United States, uh, going often from the U.S. through San Francisco uh, and, and coming to Australia. Many of them thought they were going to be covering the war from the Dutch East Indies, but the events were proceeding so fast, the Japanese were moving so fast, that they really couldn't do that. So they wind up uh, coming to Australia. And the place that they go, most of them, is to Melbourne because you have broadcast facilities in Melbourne, and also because the big kahuna, MacArthur, is going to wind up in Melbourne on March the 21st, 1942. Agronsky's own travel to Australia was perilous and harrowing. Uh, he, wherever he went, from Singapore 
uh, to various parts of the Dutch East Indies, he was apparently constantly being one step ahead of Japanese attacks. And according to one of the journalists, a man named George Folster, who was talking to Cecil Brown over dinner one night, when he arrived in Australia, he was bomb-wacky. And he, he simply had seen too many bombs and had too many close calls. And what's interesting, too, is that Folster, who was never friends with Agronsky, I should add, predicts that, that Agronsky will never cover the war again. But in fact, he was young and he was, and, and he was flexible and he winds up getting over that uh, and, 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 and wants to be in the middle of all the action. He gets his bearings back. So by, by the end of January of 42, you've got 115 American journalists uh, in Australia. Uh, I should, excuse me, 115 accredited to cover the Pacific War and, and about 30 are going to congregate in Melbourne at general headquarters. Uh, and they're going to be in MacArthur's presence, and we'll talk a little bit in the next few minutes about how MacArthur works with them. Now, I want to say a word about the status of a, of a war reporter. Some of you know this, some of you may not. Um, a, a war reporter is a tertium quid, or a third thing in Latin. Um, they're not civilians, because they're wearing uniforms, and they're subject to military authority. Um, uh, there's something in between, though, because they're not active military and they are not going to hold guns and they're not going to shoot anybody. So to distinguish them from civilians, these correspondents are going to go around in Australia wearing officers' uniforms minus any insignia of rank. One of the little factoids about this is that there was always this ambiguity about uh, being a, a younger a private or a corporal or something, and seeing one of these fellas in their uniform, do you salute them or do you not salute them? And the, the way most of the reporters dealt with it was they didn't salute these fellas, but if someone saluted them, they'd salute them back just out of a sign of, out of, sign of respect. They were attached to headquarters of uh, field commands, and they had access to the same facilities and transports that uh, military people had. Uh, they, they had government communication facilities accessible to them, uh, but the key qualification to all of this is the trade-off was that they were subject to censorship on everything that they submitted uh, to the American public. Now, what about censorship? Let's talk a little bit about that. First, I wanted to show you that by January of 42, Darwin is ablaze. So this is an Australian story, not just a, a Singapore story. And you've got a deep concern in Australia that they are next on the Japanese uh, table for conquest. Uh, historians have discussed this at great length. And the basic story, if you're not familiar with Australian World War II history, is that the Japanese uh, uh, army was interested in invading Australia. The Navy, which was more powerful, uh, as Adam reminded me the other night, uh, always said, not today, not today, not now, maybe later, but of course later never came. Um, this is the area where people are moving from, so if this gives you a more vivid or visual idea uh, of uh, the Dutch East Indies at the time and how people wind up going from there to Darwin and then taking uh, either planes or trains over to, to Melbourne. Uh, and this is the, the red lines in this particular uh, image. This is from the dust jacket of, uh, of Cecil Brown's book, which I'll show you later. It shows you exactly how Brown made his way 
to Australia. And then if you look to the right, uh, that's him going back to the United States because he found that life was too uncomfortable for him in Australia. His reputation had preceded him and he was not going to be very successful in getting his broadcasts through. So he took the easier way out by getting a book contract uh, and writing what turned out to be a bestseller. I'll come back to that. Um, American uh, officials in general in the Navy were very strict about censorship. Admiral King was famous for his uh, refusal to let anything go that was not going to serve his exact purposes. But King, who had uh, a staff that reminded him that you couldn't just say, we're going to have a blanket uh, blackout on all news until we declare the war won, uh, he began to say, we can play with uh, these reporters a little bit, we can feed them some information, and maybe they will give us more positive stories, which will help our purposes. Um, now, I, sh I should add here that beyond American military censorship, you have Australian censorship. So it's a layering of censorship that these reporters are dealing with uh, in Australia in 1942. And there was a great concern in Australia. You could even say a kind of paranoia in Australia that if these reporters were going to say anything negative to them, uh, to their audiences, that this would possibly diminish the degree to which Franklin Roosevelt and American officialdom would be willing to support the Australians in their time of great need. That if, if the Australians didn't look like they were fully aboard in terms of doing their bit, that the Americans might say, we have other things to focus on. And of course, you know that it was a Europe first strategy in the war anyway, and the Australians were always trying to get face time with Roosevelt to commit to more effort in the Pacific. Um, so the, the business in Australia is another layer of censorship on these reporters. Uh, and then there is spin. And it's in my title of my talk, and we have to talk about that too. And who is the master of spin but Douglas MacArthur himself? Um, now, MacArthur is, he is as brilliant in press management as anyone I've seen in studying history. Um, he always talked to the reporters, almost in an avuncular way, about how we're going to work together to tell the American people the story. Uh, I favor honest reporting, he said. Um, he, he gave a talk to the reporters right after he arrived in Melbourne. Um, and he then issued a press release, which was really a verbatim account of the talk. Let's see if we've got MacArthur here. Well, these are the censors that, uh, that they're going to deal with. Uh, and they look like a happy lot. Uh, and there's our man MacArthur. And there he is on the big day, March 21st, arriving to a tumultuous welcome uh, in Melbourne. And those of you who are interested in Australian history will recognize the person in the next slide. And that's, of course, John Curtin, who is the, uh, man at the right man at the right time for Australia during the Second World War. So MacArthur doesn't yell at the reporters. He doesn't demand anything of reporters when he meets them. He says, I want your help. I want to work with you, he says. I don't want to suppress news. This is, I'm quoting him now. But I want to get news to you, he says. Um, uh, and if the reporters handled facts that he had in his headquarters responsibly, quote, most of the criticism that you might be inclined to present will disappear, he said. Uh, he assured the reporters that they could criticize anything 
that they thought was wrong, anything. The only condition, he said, was that before broadcasting or publishing, they should see him and get his point of view on the matter. <laughs> now, whatever assurances he gave um, that censorship would be reasonable and that he would quote, and I'm quoting him again, always be glad to give you my full knowledge or full opinion on any subject, albeit on background, of course, the realities I think you're guessing already, were a little bit different than the way MacArthur presented it. Let's be just frank. Only positive news was acceptable to MacArthur. One student of American foreign reporting has noted that, quote, adulation of MacArthur was welcome, but the general did not brook criticism from the press. One member of the press corps based at MacArthur's headquarters, a man named Frank Gervaisi, uh, later recalled that journalists, quote, could not write anything critical of MacArthur's personality or his acts or anything which might indicate that someone somewhere at some time might disagree with MacArthur. <laughs> I got that out of a Collier's Magazine article. Uh, <laughs> MacArthur's chief press aide uh, was uh, Colonel Diller. And well, these are, the, these are the men. Colonel Diller is right here. That's uh, the grand, uh, he was known as either Pick Diller or Killer Diller. Uh, he, was, he was the closest guy to MacArthur. This fellow who really bears a strange resemblance to Herman Goering is, is, uh, is Bill Dunn, who was the CBS reporter and, and uh, was a chief rival of, of, of uh, Agronsky during that year. But that's a good sense of, of uh, Diller with these people. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get to these other reporters. Well, I can just introduce them briefly now. Joe Harsh, who for 40 or more years was a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, and this is from his memoirs. Joe Harsh was in Australia for the exact same amount of time that Gronsky was. John Lardner, who wrote for Newsweek and was really not a hard news guy. If you want to know what it was like in Australia in 1942, not the military side, but the, the, the daily life side of things, nobody did it better than John Lardner. Uh, he was from the famous Lardner family of writers in the United States. Um, so back to the plot here. Uh, the realities, as I'm suggesting, were pretty different from the promises. Uh, even seemingly innocuous information could sometimes face a blue pencil from MacArthur's censors. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, when a journalist tried to say that during a military parade, John Philip Sousa's march, Semper Fidelis, was being played, that's it, just report that they played Semper Fidelis, the, the censor lined it out on the grounds that it would indicate to any smart person, you know what I'm going to say, that it was the Marines. <laughs> right. Um, so all of the, the press, and I'll get into some of these other examples that, that Agronsky specifically faced in a couple minutes. Um, anytime you had a report on a major military uh, operation, say the Battle of Coral, Coral Sea in May of 1942, uh, if you're uh, reading these transcripts or reading the, the accounts, you really don't know what the heck is going on because the reporters know very little that they can convey. That's what I would call hard news. So when I'm reading Gronsky, who is a terrific reporter, when I'm reading his dispatches in May of 42, I'm thinking, who won this battle? What happened in this battle? Uh, it doesn't come through very clearly. MacArthur of course, wanted it that way. Uh, he wanted the press to have be fed and watered. He wanted the press to be complicit and compliant. But he wasn't going to feed them information that did anything but help him. Uh, he saw the press as an adjunct to his work 
And that's one of the reasons he was smart enough to cultivate uh, the press. Uh, and he wanted them to see things from his perspective. Let me, uh, this is later in my talk, but I'm going to say it now. MacArthur, um, again, talked one way, acted another. He says to the reporters in March of 1942, when he meets them, he says, I want you to know I'm going to do this relationship without, without any favoritism to anybody. Nobody gets an exclusive with me. So he walks around a table, probably about the size of this table. He's got 30 American reporters in the room. He's, on his, he's, he's chugging on his corncob pipe, right? And he's, he's, he's a master of the ad lib, and he's a master of responding and spinning things. And he tells them, you're all going to be treated exactly the same. He didn't treat people exactly the same. He would call in individual reporters when he served his purposes and give them a quote exclusive. Now, they couldn't quote him directly. They would say the highest military source. People knew who that was. Uh, but he would call them. And then they, you know, I was a journalist once. I know how this works when dealing with politicians. If a politician is nice to you, you tend to be nice back to the politician. And this case, it's a, it's a, it's a general. He gets very good press because these reporters get their so-called exclusives with him, even though he claimed he would never do that. And of course, if you wrote things that he didn't like, you were not going to get those exclusives. And I might add again, for those interested in Australian history, that Thomas Blamey, who was the commander on the, of the ground forces, and he was an Australian general, Thomas Blamey hated the press and had a miserable uh, relationship with the press, and of course, most famously with Chester Wilmot, one of the greatest reporters of the Second World War, uh, who he basically drove out of the Pacific Theater to Europe because uh, he made up a story about Wilmot that made Wilmot look bad, which wasn't true. Um, MacArthur didn't do it that way. MacArthur played the game in a much more subtle and effective way. Um, OK, uh, I've covered the business about MacArthur and the press. Let me turn to consideration of Brown and Agronsky, because they're just two great characters that I've, I've really gotten engaged with over the last months. Both of them had previously, as I suggested for Brown, run afoul of censors. Uh, Brown, in fact, had, had been thrown out of Rome before he got thrown out of Singapore and the Dutch East Indies. Uh, Agronsky was thrown out of Rome. And one of Agronsky's remarks about it was uh, he published a piece on anti-Semitism in, in Mussolini's Italy. And he was told uh, by official there uh, that they could run Italy without his help. Uh, and so he was dismissed from Italy. Um, so by early of 42, Brown is again running into trouble with the, with the authorities in Singapore. Uh, the, the chief British press office in Malaya was a man named Sir George Sanson. And he told Brown, talk about being straightforward, objective reporting and the local morale situation are irreconcilable. Uh, so he knew where he was coming from. Brown, of course, felt he had another obligation. And that's why Brown is soon enough kicked out of, of Singapore. Uh, there's a great backstory about Brown, of course, that he was the only uh, American reporter on a British ship uh, right after Pearl Harbor that was sunk, the repulse that was sunk. Uh, and, and he lives to tell about it. And he then winds up, when he decides to leave Australia, he then goes and takes this contract to write Suez to Singapore, which was a bestseller in the year 1942. And that, that photograph, of course, is not of him in Australia, but in Egypt, I believe, uh, earlier in the war. Uh, 
Brown winds up becoming a commentator uh, for CBS Radio, uh, has a long career right into the 1960s, but again, kind of disappears from our consciousness, even though he was uh, a top dog at the time. I do want to say one more thing about Brown. Um, in February of 42, about the time that Brown was going to uh, arriving in Australia, he gets called by Life magazine, and they want him to write an article about what's the deal in Australia. What can you say that Americans need to know about Australians? And he writes this piece, and it's called The Australians, and it appeared to, in Life magazine in June of 1942. It's, a, it's an interesting piece because it kind of goes in different directions. On the one hand, the Australians are great people. They've got a great character. They're terrific fighters. Uh, there are allies by blood. There are allies by, by ideology. There are allies in belief in, in our democracy and all of that. But then he also strews through it some fairly tough reporting about how Australian workers, particularly dock workers, were not doing their jobs and how they were working very short hours and taking lots of breaks. And the Japanese, as he says in the article, they're not working 30 hours a week. They're working 70 hours a week. Uh, this is a problem, he says. Well, this infuriated the tempestuous foreign minister of Australia, a guy named H.V. Evatt, who, who penned a, uh, a very sharp rebuttal uh, to Brown, even though what Brown had said was absolutely true. Uh, and send it off to Life magazine. And I thought it was interesting. It probably went right up to Henry Luce. The article appeared in June of 1943. Evitt's rebuttal was written in late June of 43. The, the, the letter to the editor was published in March of, uh, that was 42. It, the letter to the editor was published in March of 43. So it took nine months for, for the Life magazine to publish the letter to the editor. Talk about burying it, right? Um, now, Agronsky. Um, Agronsky had stuck up for Brown. You know, he, this isn't a case uh, where you have a rival in the journalistic world and you sort of have a schadenfreude uh, that the person's in trouble, right? Agronsky went right at the censors and said, Brown has done nothing wrong. He's always played by the rule book. He's giving honest reporting, and he has never broken any of his responsible actions in terms of censor, showing his material to censors. He's just fighting with you to get his stories through. And, and, I, and that made, of course, a friend for life with him, with Cecil Brown. Um, Agronsky himself makes a big splash early in his visit to Australia in February of 42. And I'm going to come back to this at the end because it gets him kicked out of Australia, gets him prevented from covering the war further in Australia. There was an event that happened where bad shells in the, in the American Navy and bad direction had prevented a, an effective response to a Japanese attack uh, in the Dutch East Indies. And he reports this, and it makes the front page of the New York Times. What he does not know, even though nothing happens to him immediately, is that the Navy has filed this away as this guy is bad news, and we're going to get him. And, and they do. Um, now, he does continue to report for the next six months, and these are the crucial six months as far as Australians are concerned. Um, what, is his, what is he doing as a reporter? Well, he's filing twice a day, morning and evening, at least five days a week. And he's writing his copy on the fly. And we, you can read it in the Library of Congress. I'm going to show you some examples uh, in, in a minute or so. Um, Agronsky does not 
make himself out to be uh, Peck's bad boy of journalism. He tells the story the way MacArthur wants it told. We have a war to win in the Pacific theater. We don't have the resources to do what we need to do to win that war. We have a great general in Douglas MacArthur. We've got to give him the tools to work with. So in that sense, Agronsky is doing exactly what the spin meister himself would want uh, Agronsky to do. Um, he talks uh, about uh, the great resolve of the air power in Australia and the United States, the pilots specifically, and how they're going up and they're doing the job for the country. Uh, one of his feel-good stories, which is a, a periodic story that he interweaves into his, his broadcast, is interviewing pilots and getting them to, to unpack a particular flight that they did and, and making the reader, or the listener in this case, uh, feel like that they were there with the pilots. Um, he quotes H.V. Evatt himself uh, as saying at one point that if we did not provide more support for the Australians militarily and with munitions, there mightn't be an Australia to come back to. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, that was censored by the Australian, pre the Australian press censors. Um, now, what do you deal with in terms of Australian censorship? You, you deal with people who are pretty hardcore. Uh, this first is Agronsky talking about a free press, and it's interesting that his comments about a free press are printed in an Australian newspaper, uh, in which he's making the case that, you know, in every country we, that goes to the Axis, people don't know the truth, we have to tell the truth. The press is a job to tell the government of the temper and the condition of the people, etc. That, that appears in, a, in an Australian paper. But then he has to run in first with Killer Diller, uh, right, <laughs> who is his, a thorn in his and other reporters' sides, and then this fella, Edmund Garnet Barney. And I want to say a couple words about Barney. He was a former editorial writer for the Sydney Morning Herald, and he was appointed chief censor for Australia in April of 1941. His reputation was... Uh, for the most expansive possible interpretation of what could be censored, uh, especially for overseas press reports. Um, he, he, he not only censored military information, but anything that might affect Australia's reputation in the United States. Anything that might make Australia look as anything other than an effective uh, and willing partner of the Americans uh, would not get through. Uh, author Robert Bell argues uh, that as a result of this, uh, the impact of Australian censors was to make the Australian press behave more like a propaganda arm of the government than a genuine free agent. But what I like, and I'm going to share with you now, is what his own staff said about uh, Bonnie. They offered a ditty. My Bonnie lies over the ocean. My Bonnie lies over the sea. And sometimes I get the notion, my Bonnie lies also to me. <laughs> There, there, there is, uh, again, Diller uh, leading the pack of American journalists, including my, my friend Bill Dunn carrying a koala bear, right? Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great uh, piece. Uh, I, I, Gronsky uh, is unfortunately not in uh, this particular uh, picture, and, and Brown had already left. But this fellow right here might be worth noting, because some of you will know about his children. This is Byron Barney Darnton. I don't know how many of you know this story, but Barney Darton was the New York Times reporter who was to cover the war in the Pacific. <coughs> Darton goes over in the first, among the first landings in New Guinea in the fall of 19, September of 1942, and he is killed 
by friendly fire. And it was, it was a horrible thing. The reason I mention that some of you know about his kids is that some of you may have heard of Robert or John Darton. They were both very small. Robert Darton, the Princeton professor and, and, and director of the Harvard University Library and great French historian. John Darton, a New York Times reporter, prize winner for many years. Uh, I think that uh, Robert was four years old and John was a year and a half when their father was killed in the war. So this is, this is not beanbag, this is serious stuff. Um, now, as far as dealing with censors go, this is a hard thing to know, absent being able to interview someone who served as a journalist in Australia at the time. How much cat and mouse did they play? How much self-censorship were they engaged in? How much did they sneak things through? How much did they just count on their relationship building with censors to enable them to get more in than they might, not, uh, might otherwise get? Uh, I'll tell you right now that one of my, I would say, instincts in reading these, these uh, transcripts very closely is that in many cases, you do see blue pencil, and I'm going to show you the blue pencil in a second. But you also notice that the censors are acting as copy editors. Because you can see, they, they see that a better word could be used to describe something, and you see the blue pencil with the better word. So I think there's a, I wouldn't call it a symbiotic relationship, because that doesn't seem right. But there is a relationship that goes on when you're working with the same censors uh, over a period of months. And in some cases, the censors are trying to help you, not just thwart you. And I think that, again, adds to what we were talking about, uh, I was talking about with Rhonda before, about the need for complexity in, in, in working with our students and getting the word out to our students about what the issue is in any given case. Um, so I've just talked about reviewing some of these transcripts. Let me tell you about some of the things that he couldn't get through. Um, he couldn't talk about uh, anything that was pessimistic about where the Allies stood in relation to the war. Um, he couldn't talk about uh, fifth columnist organizations in Australia that had been unearthed. Uh, he, he couldn't talk about uh, labor disputes at all. Um, he couldn't publish information that he got from cabinet officers about troubles that they were having, whether it was logistics or militarily. Um, he couldn't talk about the coal situation in Australia. All of this stuff, when he tried to write about it, was blue-penciled. Um, when he, when he reported about the disappointing results of a liberty loan campaign in 1942, again, blue-penciled. But here's my favorite. Um, in the summer of 42, he goes, uh, he travels, and I think he's in Brisbane, and he writes an account of a woman customer, oh, it was in Newcastle. He writes an account of a woman customer in a Newcastle store uh, in a scrum of, quote, clothes-hungry shoppers who bit a shop employee blocking her rush to the bargain bins. And, and he, he can't publish that either. <laughs> so let's get to what you may be interested in here, and that is, does it matter? How much of all, how much of, all of what I've said actually matters? Uh, and, and I think the answer that I would offer has to be viewed, admittedly, as subjective. Um, I would say that the censorship that, that Agronsky and his peers uh, dealt with was annoying, but it, it was a price that they were more than willing to pay. They were Americans, they were patriots, they wanted the, the war effort to go well. Um, I'm also struck by how much 
um, interesting and valuable information, the listener on NBC Radio to Agronsky or to CBS of Bill Dunn, who wrote in a much less dramatic way than Agronsky did, uh, I'm interest I, I would say they got a pretty good sense of it. Now, in, in the case of Agronsky, I would say that uh, it wasn't so much that he slanted the news to get through the centers as he highlighted situations that he himself believed to be true. So, for example, he believed that MacArthur was the key man and that we needed to give MacArthur more authority in the Pacific War, that we needed to give MacArthur more resources, or we couldn't possibly be successful. That's not a case of him running against any grain. Um, it's what he believed. And I think that would be true of, of his compeers as well. Um, now, he did, as I say, occasionally punctuate the hard news stuff with softer news about how American GIs were doing. I love the interviews that he would do with American GIs, and he'd ask them what they think of Australian coffee or what they think of other uh, pieces of the Australian diet. And of course, the Americans would always tell them that they wanted what they were used to back in the United States, and please get me that if you can. And some people then would send it. Um, some of his, uh, his reporting had a kind of gee whiz, how impressive was that element to it? And that was when he he would introduce pilots to the American audience. Uh, he, he really wanted to have a feel-good element in his reporting, too, and, and, and that was part of the reality of it. Now, I'm going to close, or bring us toward the close here, with how Agronsky falls afoul. And it relates to what I said to you about uh, February of 1942. Um, there's Bonnie. These, this is. Uh, well, I'll take a second here. This is a typical dispatch that I'm reading in the uh, Library of Congress. And the blue up there is the censors. I think the brown is the coffee spilling, all right? <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. I'm going to show you three, three examples of a dispatch with, with a good deal of blue penciling. Um, these are the other two, right? Um, I don't want to give you the impression that this is every day. Uh, there are dispatches where only, that's what, uh, only a word or two is, is deleted or changed. Uh, but these are things that he had to deal with. And when he got the blue pencil, that was it. He, couldn't, he could cajole, maybe, but generally he went along with it because he knew he, he wanted to live to fight another day. So that, that will give you some idea from May of 42. And that's just when uh, we're getting to the uh, Battle of Coral Sea. Uh, here's one more, uh, July 26, 1942. And you can see very clearly uh, the blue lines. If you really wanted to study it, you could see exactly what was problematic from the censor's point of view. Notice in the upper right-hand corner, every single transcript has that, because otherwise it doesn't get through, it doesn't get recorded. So what happens to mess things up for Gronsky? Well, literally, the week he arrives bomb wacky, as it was said, from the Dutch East Indies. He tells a story uh, to his listeners about this Japanese air patrol and this fight in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean on February 21. Uh, he describes what the Japanese military had accomplished and what it was likely to do next, uh, emphasizing how poorly the British were prepared to fight uh, in Singapore. Um, this becomes the basis for his scoop. Here's some bad news, and it's the truth, he says. To start with, it is painfully clear that the Allied nations, unless their policy changes immediately, are in serious danger of complete defeat in Eastern and Western Asia. And then he referred to a, quote, first-class Jap Army, Navy, and Air Force, led by decisive commanders, 
which he said contrasted to an Allied command that was consistently dealing with internal squabbles over authority. Uh, and then he says that Americans needed to face up to the fact that they hadn't done much to alter the balance of power in the war as of February. <coughs> but it gets worse. In, on February the 23rd, he broadcasts from Sydney about this military attack uh, against 32 Japanese bombers and how futile it was. Why was it futile? Because, he says, the ship's anti-aircraft ammunition was more than a decade ago and 70% of the shells that the men tried to fire were duds and that the anti-aircraft guns targeting Japanese planes could not do so with any accuracy because the material they were working with was defective. He also tells about RAF pilots trying to enter the fight at Singapore who were told they had no orders to do it and that they should return to base in Java for further instructions. This is what comes out of that broadcast, uh, his scoop, Allied Ineptitude in the Pacific. You can imagine what Frank Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, thought when he read this. Here you go, the follow-up. This is the New York Times, the front page, right? Defective shells charged to Navy and Far East convoy protection. Now, what's surprising to me is that Gronsky wasn't immediately slapped down. For I don't really know the answer to that. But what happens in August of 1942 is he has been going for three years in a row, and he is worn down emotionally as well as physically. He's at the end of his rope. He needs to get some R&R. He decides he wants to go back to the United States figuring that there was going to be an offensive in New Guinea in September. He had his, the word out about that. He'll take a couple of months, he'll get his mojo back, and then he'll go back uh, into the reporting. Guess what? Goes back to the US. He'd already irritated, as Brown had, his producers by being as tough as he was. They told him to ratchet it back, and of course he didn't want to. The key thing for Ogronsky is he has to get reaccredited to go back to the military theater and the Navy will not give him his accreditation. He doesn't know this. Nobody tells him they're not going to give it to him. They just say, well, keep waiting, keep waiting, and it doesn't come through. So one month goes by, two, three, four. In December of 42, and by the way, I've got to just say quickly, he falls in love in Australia, and that's another reason he wants to, to go back, because an American Army nurse uh, is waiting for him in Australia, and he is going crazy. And you, all, you all just have to read his letters to know all the details about that. Uh, but he uses a contact he has in the Air Force, uh, a general named Ralph Royce, to get actually an interview with the Navy secretary, who I think I have for you here. Uh, Frank Knox. Uh, and so he finally gets to go, because he's getting no answers about why he can't get back to Australia. He finally gets an audience with Frank Knox in December of 1942. And he figures that one-on-one, -on -one he'll persuade Knox. And Knox says, you're a troublemaker. Uh, Knox doesn't directly tell him, you'll never get back to Australia. He says, I can't promise to do a thing for you because you have a reputation. And of course, the accreditation never materializes. And Agronsky winds up going on a lecture tour. Uh, he doesn't write a book, but he, he gets himself a contract with the Blue Network, which is a precursor of ABC, to be a commentator for, for them. So let me close. Um, and by the way, he does eventually get back together with Helen Smathers, 
who is the woman that he fell in love with in Australia, marries and has kids, and it was for them a happily ever after until she was killed in a fire some years later. Um, this is him on his lecture tour uh, as he comes back to the States. So summing up, um, what do you make of all of this? I think I make that th these, these reporters did a, as good a job as they could do under difficult circumstances. They recognized the limits they were under. They worked with them. In some cases, they worked around them. Um, whether we're talking about Agronsky, Brown, Louis Sebring of the New York Herald Tribune, John Lardner, Barney Darton, George Weller, the, these guys were first-class correspondents, Joe Harsh and the, and, 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 and the others. In the process of covering the Pacific War, they did enlighten the listening public back home and the reading public. They helped shape policymakers' understanding of what was going on in this vitally important theater. Uh, and by and large, uh, they made sense. And I'll stop right there. Thank you.